Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This is the first part of a four-part series entitled Revelation and Revolution, Jewish History of the 18th Century that David presented at the Jewish Museum in Melbourne in 2016. So this is a four-part series that I'm welcoming you to. One of the reasons I chose the 18th century is because I'm constantly looking to refresh our perspectives on that period and because the 18th century, to those of you who are a little bit familiar with it, now that we're sitting in the 21st century, the 18th century is really the origin and source of just about everything we encounter in the modern world. And that's not just the case for Jewish history, it's also the case for world history. And so if it, it, what, what is amazing about the 18th century is the more you study it, the more it sheds light on where we are today and it really gives a much deeper understanding of contemporary history, if you like, and what's going on there. So I say this every time and I'm going to say it again. Those of you who are familiar uh, with some of the talks I give will know this, but I'm going to reiterate it. We will endeavour to cover most points of interest in the 18th century. There's no question that my aim will be, as it has always been, to make sure that when you're sitting at those fancy dinner parties and the subject of the 18th century comes up, <laughs> that any topic that's discussed, you'll be all over. However, I also remind you, as I always do, that even though we are going to spend four whole sessions on the 18th century, we are still only jet skiing over that period. It's almost impossible to contain what it has to tell us and what is of interest to us within the four sessions. So bear that in mind, if I choose to talk about something, it's because it's important. But there are oceans of material that I would encourage you to go into researching if you have any particular interest. The thing is that, having said that about the 18th century, that it's really the origin of everything in the Jewish world at the moment, all the movements, all the great themes, all the great issues that are still with us in the Jewish world, you'll find their origin pretty much in the 18th century. But in saying that, really, and I don't mean this as a cute comment, I really mean this, the best introduction to the 18th century is actually the 17th century. <laughs> And therefore, it's kind of impossible for us not to look briefly at what is going on in the Jewish world and where we are when we open this century. The 18th century more or less starts with the year 1700 or 1701, if you want to be very technically correct. And what is the Jewish world at that point? And what are the issues that are concerning us? And where we find ourselves, because that's the only way we're really going to understand how the 18th century evolves. So I need to spend a little bit of time looking at the world as it is in around 1700, as a product of what's been going on in the 1600s. Let me ask you this question. 
And if you know the answer, don't answer it. <laughs> just, or don't answer it immediately. Just put your hand up. We're not at school, but I don't mean to patronise you, but I, I just want to give people a chance to think before someone blurts it out. Okay, so if you know it, let me know by going, right, or however you want to do it. What is the largest Jewish community in the world in the year 1700? I don't need to draw a timeline tonight, by the way. If you can't work out when 1700 to 1800 is, then come and see me later. But it is about... So we're talking about... We're talking really about 300 years ago. We're talking about the year 1700. What's the largest Jewish community in the world? Is it, you put, you're putting it behind it because you know or because you want to guess? Because you know. You think so. You think so? What do you think? Ah, well, that's a country. Okay, I should have been more. I should have been more specific. I really meant community, meaning like Melbourne or New York or London, right? I really was meant a city, and it just happens that that city is not in Poland. <laughs> what were you going to say? You're going to say Poland. Look, first, first, first of all, let me tell you that. The numbers of Jews in the world at this period are not that great. For some reason, based on a whole range of issues, we are currently going through a little bit of a population bottleneck. There's only about a million and a half Jews in the world at this time, by even generous estimates. So a large community is 30 to 40,000. Really big community, like the one I'm talking about, is 50 to 60,000 Jews. Which, 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 which city has the largest Jews? In fact, this community is so large and so influential, it's called the Mother of Israel. It's not Vilna. All right, we'll take a couple more guesses because I want to stay in the next two hours taking these guesses. We've got a lot to talk about. This is really just an introductory remark. Go. Close. No cigar just yet, but close. It's not Baghdad. I'll tell you, it's Salonika. It's Thessaloniki in northern Greece. It's part of that Jewish axis of Constantinople, Smyrna, Salonika in the Ottoman Empire. But Salonika is so big, in fact, two-thirds of the entire population of Salonika is Jewish. Because during about a century before... About 20,000 Sephardic refugees had launched themselves on the place and over time it had grown in influence and uh, population and it is now recognized at the 1700, we put our consciousness back there, it really, really is a deeply significant community. When you hear much later on and you read statements, and I'm not going there now, but when you read statements like, oh, the Nazis took the community of Salonika and they took them out and they executed them or they sent them off to concentration camps, Salonika is not just another place. It really was kind of like the centre of the Jewish world 300 years ago, as were many of the places that were obliterated in the 20th century had deeply significant histories, and we're going to learn about that. So we're looking at a world like this. We're looking at a world like this. You all know what that is. It's the Mediterranean, if you don't know by now. Right, there's the water, right? Here's Spain, Portugal. Now, 
the world of 1700. I know that we all learnt this, and I know that many of you are familiar with this, but I'm just going to go over it very, very briefly so that we can understand that the world of 1700 kind of looks like today's world, but not quite. It's obviously on its way to becoming today's world, but there are significant things that have not yet happened. So, for example, there's roughly a thing called Spain. It's actually a kind of like a joint Spanish crown situation, Aragon and Castile, but it's basically Spain. France is basically France. England is basically England. All right? But Germany is definitely not Germany. Germany at this point is still a bunch of principalities, kingdoms such as Hanover, Saxony, Bavaria, Prussia and so on. The Austrian-Hungarian Empire is actually quite a significant power. And that's sitting here. And in fact, Hungary has recently just been won back for the West from the Ottoman Empire. And that's what we've got to realize is that the Ottoman Empire, run of course from Constantinople, is enormous. And the Ottoman Empire is pretty much... If there is a superpower of the day, it is the Ottoman Empire. Although the Ottoman Empire, which really is all of this, and then of course up here is this massive thing called Russia, right? And sitting here, I know this is already getting very messy. I need another colour, give me green perhaps. Sitting here is the big kingdom of Poland, Lithuania. Poland and Lithuania, they were a kingdom and they're quite large. They're bigger than just about any of the other European entities. And then Russia is going that way. The Ottoman Empire, just recently, in the last few decades, remember I'm not now, I'm back in 1700, the Ottoman Empire has just undergone a series of conflicts with the Austro-Hungarian Empire and they've basically lost Hungary, and quite a significant amount of the Balkans. And so this is generally regarded, it's not yet, not yet, not yet, but generally regarded as the beginning of the decline of the Ottoman Empire around 1700, because it actually lost territories in Europe. And we're starting to see the kind of shape that it's going to take. Remember that at this point, Greece is still in the Ottoman Empire, uh, of course, here you've got, you know, the Kingdom of Sicily and Naples, but all of these are little papal states. We haven't got an Italy yet. All right. Uh, we've got a Kingdom of Morocco. And we actually have the Safavid dynasty in Iran. I can see that some of you are already looking at this going, whoa, I'm getting dizzy looking at it. But we've got a world that is becoming the world we know. And there are Jewish communities right across this world. In fact, by now, there are Jewish communities way off this map. We're going to focus on this part here because really, for the first couple of talks, because there are now Jewish communities arising in America and there are Jewish communities in India and China. But for the most part, we're going to be focusing on what was still regarded as kind of the known world. Now, 
when I say that the 17th century is a period that has left us with a few issues, hi, these are some of the background themes that we're going to talk about. And I'm going to talk about these background themes for most of the first half of tonight's talk. Then we'll have a break and then I'll come back and we'll dive deep into some personalities and events, which will only really make sense if we talk about these issues. But what has happened in the 1600s? Well, uh, a few things. <laughs> a few things. The first one I want to talk about is ultimately the biggest. And we can't see it yet. Remember, we're in 1700. We can't see this yet. But what has been taking place during the 17th century has been an enormous transformation and shift in human thought. Which we now call the Enlightenment. Now, that has been taking place mostly in the West, in England and in France and in Germany and in Holland and here in the 1600s. Your average turnip-munching peasant over here isn't exactly sitting down reading Newton. But... Even without them knowing, the waves of the Enlightenment, the waves of the scientific revolution are starting to have an effect on the world. We're no longer in the Renaissance. We've come out. We're now actually in the scientific revolution. As you would know, already in the 16th century, that is in the 1500s, is Copernicus. And the 1600s, that is the 17th century, has brought us Galileo. All right, he's already looking at the moons of Jupiter. We've got Kepler. And we've got, of course, kind of like the granddaddy of Enlightenment thought. And I'm going to go into him for one minute, even though some of you will think, oh, how is that relevant to 18th century Jewish history? I'm going to go into it for one minute. Who's considered the philosophical granddaddy of Enlightenment thought is... Descartes. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing, and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. So what's the basic idea that Descartes is bringing us? Descartes is wanting to completely wipe everything we know and to reconstruct knowledge based only on what I can absolutely know. So he brings the whole thing down to a rational principle and of course he famously starts with the cogito ergo sum, meaning what's the only thing I can really, really know at the end of the day is that someone is thinking. Oh, I'm thinking, therefore I exist. And from there it's all built up. What the Enlightenment fundamentally is, is a project to shift away from what we had regarded as truth, which was embodied in words, particularly revealed words, to an understanding of reality based on mathematics. It is the rise of rationalism, the rise of mathematically founded empirical research and theory. 
that culminates in the 1600 in the mind-blowing publication in 1687 of Principia Mathematica by Newton. Because what Newton does in that book is he, it's, by the way, and I've said this before and I'll say it again because some people get confused, Newton was not the first person to notice gravity. People realized before Newton that if you dropped something, it fell. But what Newton was able to do was to describe it mathematically and not just on the scale that we understand in our daily life, but in fact, he described the movements of the planets and the sun. And the realization was that, well, if we can do that, then there's nothing the human mind is not capable of doing. This really launches the scientific revolution. And of course, together with Newton, Leibniz is also developing calculus and so on. So mathematics and science are about to seriously take off. In the middle of all that, and following Descartes' work on attempting to mathematize reality and our understanding of basic concepts, is Spinoza. And I'm going to go into Spinoza a little later. Um, obviously Spinoza is of, Baruch Spinoza is of tremendous interest to Jewish thought and Jewish history, uh, but we must never forget that Spinoza is a world figure. It's not simply someone that is claimed by the Jewish people. He is a world thinker um, that, he, that wider philosophy looks at as one of its great contributors. And we'll have a little bit more to say about that. But what's interesting about Spinoza, and I'm going to use that to now shift to another point about the 17th century and about putting our consciousness back into the year 1700 where we're going to open up. And I need to say this because I, sometimes we forget when we look at things is that there is really not yet any such thing as a secular person. It's not, and especially for Jews, it's not like people can wake up one morning and go, oh, I think I'll be a doctor, I think I'll be a lawyer, I think I'll be an accountant, I think I'll go into business, I don't think I'll live in the ghetto, I think I'll go and live over there in this new suburb of Caulfield, or I'll go and do this, or I'll go and do that. That, and I'm protected because I'm a citizen of the state. There's no citizens of the state. We have not yet reached that point in the evolution of political ideas. There are no really recognizable states that we would have yet. They're in the formation of development. Spinoza is often regarded by many people as kind of the first secular person. Spinoza's living during the 1600s and he's living in... Amsterdam. And why is he able to become who he is? And why is he able to become this kind of exemplar of what secularity is going to look like? Is precisely because he's living in Amsterdam. In the middle of the 1600s, Amsterdam is a, and, and Holland generally, having just freed themselves from that whole Spanish influence, Holland is 
a superpower. And Holland is the mercantile superpower of the world. The Dutch have invented the stock market. We're seeing the rise of capitalism. This, of course, and unfortunately it's not a lecture on the history of ideas per se, because it's fascinating to go into, but it would be no coincidence for you to realise that, as many other historians and thinkers have realised in the last few hundred years, that the rise of capitalism coming out of the Middle Ages is completely consistent with the whole theological direction that Europe has taken since the Reformation. The rise of Protestantism, some people are looking at me like they're nodding, they're going, yeah, 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 that's true. And some other people are looking at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you need to tell me, we can, we can break it down. But it's fairly clear that what is Protestantism, that whole Reformation movement started by Luther and others in the 16th century, in the 1500s, is really an idea of the rise of the self. And it's completely consistent with capitalism as a new system. And the Dutch really, really, to use a pun, capitalized on those changing conditions. And the Dutch were sending their, and plus the age of exploration they took advantage of, and advances in shipping technology. So they're sending their ships to the East Indies and to the New World and so on. And they are running the world economy for a few decades. They're very impressive. But by the time we get to 1700, that Dutch-Spanish axis of power is now giving way to a new axis that's rising, which is the English-French axis that is really going to overtake for the next century. Everybody follow that? So we are in a state of flux. We're in a state of flux with the breakdown of former ideas, and we're in a state of flux politically and commercially. Don't underestimate how important it is those economic factors that are creating this new mercantile capitalist world that is going to come about. Not everybody is able to jump on board with that immediately because most countries are not set up for it. If you're still living a middle age existence with a feudal existence with a king at the top and a whole lot of rigid nobility, you're going to find it difficult and you've made no development in your own political institutions, you're going to find it difficult to adopt this new mercantile model. But countries that were at the forefront of those changes, such as Britain, such as Holland, and to some extent France, were able to take advantage of those new conditions. Now, where does that leave the Jews? So, obviously, <laughs> well, not always, not always. Now, here's, uh, here's, here's uh, some things. So, so, I will get to that in a moment. They're definitely in ghettos in, in, in a lot of places. But we're still just looking at the 1600s and what the 1600s has left us, left us with. So I, we need, on the one hand, to earmark that. All right? So let me summarize that as a point. And I'm going to put... This is Enlightenment. is one thing that we have to realize, although, as I stressed before, the Enlightenment is not yet totally explosive. We're only at the forefront of its ideas. We have the rise of mercantilism and capitalism and the shifting changes in political structures, which I'm going to come back to in a moment in a Jewish sense. 
But if you're in the Jewish world, not only are you dealing with that, and I'm going to go into individual communities in a moment, but before we deal with that, we're also, the Jewish world is still reeling from a couple of its own issues. 1648, 1648 in secular world history, when you look up world history, you say, well, what happened in 1648? It's a very famous year because it was the year of the Treaty of Westphalia, which was supposed to impose this lasting, everlasting peace on Europe. I mean, how many times have we heard that, right? And it was the final, it was like the end of all the religious and political wars that have been happening in Europe. And by, I mean, it wasn't, but it kind of tried to impose this secure blanket on Europe to say, okay, so now we've created the fences and the borders, we know where everyone is. But in Jewish history, 1648 is an utterly devastating year because it's the year of Chmielniki massacres. The Cossack opera uprising in the Ukraine that had swept right across Eastern Europe and had left 100,000 Jews in its wake, dead, and massacred in the most awful, horrible ways. Make no mistake, the Chmielniki massacres were basically the worst massacres that had happened, that happened in Europe prior to the Holocaust. And they were devastating. We had never seen anything like this since 1100 with the First Crusades. Just wholesale slaughter and destruction of hundreds and hundreds of communities right across Europe. Sorry? What sparked Well, uh, what's, what sparked it was that as is so often the case, but in this, place, in this particular instance it was particularly acute, is that the Jews found themselves caught between the nobility and uh, a peasant uprising. Uh, the Jews, of course, were blamed because obviously the Jews had been uh, either lending or uh, money or collecting taxes, as was so often the case. We were the, like, the, you know, the commercial fluidity in a society. But this, that particular one was... I mean, you've got to realize that in Ukrainian history, Chmielniki is a hero. And if you go to Kiev today, there's still a statue of him. But for us, it's utterly reprehensible, uh, that, those whole series of events. So in a way, Eastern Europe is still reeling from that. But there's something else we're still reeling from on an even perhaps bigger scale. And that is what happened in the 1660s. And make no mistake, what I'm about to talk about People smile and they go, oh, that's cute. But they don't realize just how enormous this was. The massacres were horrendous. But they happened in Poland, Lithuania, the Ukraine, in Eastern Europe. They weren't necessarily directly affecting what was happening over here. But what I'm about to talk about affects the entire Jewish world. And that is what happened in the 1660s. And that, of course we now know as the events. That's what it's referred to by historians, the events. Put up your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Of course, you do. So the events are, and I'm going to give you a five-second summary of the events, because it's impossible to understand what's going on in much of the 18th, certainly the first half of the 18th, unless you see it in the context of the events. And like I said, some of you are going to sit there and go, Oh, that doesn't sound, you know, that's cute. It doesn't really sound so significant, but it's immense. And that is that in the 1660s, we had a Messiah. And that Messiah inflamed the entire Jewish world. It is not the case 
that just a few, you know, Loco Naboko people running around were going, oh, sometimes fee. The whole of the Jewish world was inflamed by this guy. And entire communities were swept up in this. Now, this is not, unfortunately, a lecture on Shabtai Tzvi, so I can't go into that in too much detail. Of course, those of you who are familiar with it, will, and I'm sure that's just about everybody in the room, will put up your hand if you have no idea what I'm talking about. Good. Oh, you don't. That's okay. We had a false messiah called Shabtai Tzvi in the 1660s. And what happened was, I mean, after uh, two or three years of this huge thing, he got arrested by the Ottoman authorities and he was brought before the Sultan and he was given a choice and the choice was will you convert to Islam or we'll kill you and he said where do I sign up and where's my free copy of the Quran and that caused massive devastation right across the Jewish world now here's the important point because Shabtai died some 10 years later. So you're thinking, okay, so why, why is David even talking about this? Because we've never had a Messiah, and we've had many, whose followers didn't at some point believe that he was coming back. Every single Messiah that the Jewish people have had that Messiah's followers have believed, even after that Messiah died, that that Messiah is coming back. And there were huge prophecies regarding Shabtai Tzvi that 40 to 50 years later, he would return. Even though he converted. Not not just even though he converted, even though he died. Right? I mean, dying is going to put a stop to that beyond conversion. By the way, you have to realize that his prophet, Nathan of Gaza, had he not got caught up in the Sabbatean movement, would have been one of the most brilliant Kabbalists in Jewish history, and in fact wrote entire tomes justifying, mystically explaining why Shabtai Tzvi had to convert to Islam in order to be the Messiah. Sabbateanism was not a simple business. It still isn't. And in fact, one of, it's great you, asked, you said that because one of the fundamental issues to do with Sabbatean theology was the fact that Shabtai's idea that, you know, we've been trying to do the right thing for a long time and it doesn't seem to have worked. What if we start doing the wrong thing? What if we get God's attention by sinning? And some of you are going, oh, yeah, right. Okay, what does that mean? Now, I don't know. I see some very, very delicate faces around here. I don't necessarily want to go into details about what some of their famous sins were. Do you want me to go into detail for that for a second? Yeah, yeah. Maybe for a second. Um, Two of the most famous ones, for example. And you've got to remember, these are deeply, deeply religious people that are doing this out of conviction. Uh, if you went to, um, it would be quite common, for example, if you went to uh, a Sabbatean's uh, house for Shabbat lunch and uh, you'd be served your lunch and on the side of your plate there might be just a little bit of pork <laughs> um, or a little bit of forbidden fat so that you would recognise that, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, we know, we know. 
or you and your spouse would be invited to a kibui nerot ceremony, which is called the extinguishing of the lights, where the lights would go, the candles would be put out, and then there would be a highly ritualized orgy, complete couple swapping, and then the lights would come off, I'll come on again, and everyone would, would go home. Now, the people who write about this were not going, yeah, an orgy, great. They were, this was deeply, deeply difficult for them. They were very committed religious people. They were doing these things because they really believed in the theology behind it. So on the one hand, Sabbatism was extremely antinomian. Antinomian meaning it was against the accepted order of things. But even without all that, it was a very attractive idea for a lot of communities, a lot of people. The main point about this for our purposes is this, is that early in the 18th century, already 40, 50 years after Shabtai Tzvi, all of the rabbis of Europe and the Ottoman Empire and everywhere the Jews lived were on Shabtai watch. They were on Shabtai watch, looking out for the return of Shabtai. Because there were people popping up going, I'm the return of Shabtai Tzvi. And obviously you might think, well, that would be easy to thwack down, but it wasn't. And so we have those issues. So it's very important that we are aware of that. Now, there is one other thing I just want to talk about by way of introduction, and that is particular communities. And I uh, also want us to realize just how, in a way, amazing the Jewish world is, because there were in beginning to emerge... Not just in Europe were we seeing the evolution of political structures away from the medieval model, but even within the Jewish community, we're starting to see over the last century or so the emergence of new ways in which communities were run and new models, political models, of how to run a community. Remember, this is really important. Once again, it's a consciousness thing. It's a consciousness thing for us because we can't access this. So we have to mentally project ourselves back. If you weren't part of the Jewish community, or if you weren't part of a community like that, in other words, a community that had an officially sanctioned identity, you were out. You really were out. You were on your own. It's not like you could go and get the doll. It's not like you could say, oh, you know, I'll go and do what I want and I don't need the Jewish community. If you were born Jewish and you were a Jew, you were utterly dependent on the Jewish community to survive. There are stories, we have stories of people who starved outside the gates of cities because for whatever reason the Jewish community wasn't going to accept them and if they didn't have a community to go into, they couldn't get into the city. So its identity was extremely important. And therefore, the Jewish communities in many places, particularly in Europe, were given responsibility to administer their communities to a much greater extent than we would find today. You might, for example, get rung, by, rung up by, I don't know, a JNF representative to say, when am I going to come around and collect money from your blue box? You might get called up by, you know, a shul treasurer saying, two weeks ago you donated $18 to the shul. When can we expect that? Um, you might get called up by a shul to say, uh, 
or by a school to say, you know, we believe you have uh, 10 children that need education. You might get, you know, you, you're familiar with the types of things that people will get bothered with by Jewish community structures today. That is nothing compared to how it was then, because for most of the Middle Ages and right up to this period, the Jewish community really was your governance structure for your life. And the government gave them those powers. Many Jewish communities, you paid tax through the Jewish community. The Jewish community paid tax collectively. You were often tried for your crimes, not by the state, but by the elders of the Jewish community. And of course, the Jewish community, therefore, would give undertakings to the government at large that the Jewish community was under control. There was not going to be any issues arising out of the Jewish community because we're governing it properly. Everybody follow what I'm saying? Yes. This is a different world. If we had to live in that world today, right, in Melbourne today, like that, it kind of would be a little scary. <laughs> how would the people, the non-Jews, how would they govern? Oh, well, they were, well, that would depend on who they were. In most cases, it was the church. Uh, but unless you had a different structure that you might have belonged to uh, various guilds or you might have been part of the nobility. But for the most part, part uh, it was the church. I mean, religion was very much a part of your identity. But here's the deal. That we developed over the course of the previous century this amazing institution called the Council of the Four Lands. And the Council of the Four Lands, of course, which is obviously not lands that we can really politically identify today, but was basically over this area here. It was Greater and Lesser Poland, Volhynia and Ruthenia, which is part of basically Belarus, Poland, Lithuania, parts of the Ukraine. It was an entire massive area which covered a lot of Jews. And the Council of the Four Lands, each town would elect a delegate, and the delegates would meet two or three times a year in a kind of proto-parliament in which large decisions were made. So already you can see the Jewish world reflecting the political processes that were emerging in wider society. We, in fact, kind of, and at this stage, remember, during the 1600s, only in the 1600s is Britain kind of coming into its own. Obviously, uh, in terms of democracy and parliamentary representation, and yet the Jews of Central and Eastern Europe have already got that system up and running, and that's very, very influential. Now, speaking... Well, if we're talking of Central Europe, then obviously there's a community that's very, very significant, and I'm going to mention this because there's another issue that you need to be aware of. There is a very significant community in Germany called... It's a community of three towns. It's Hamburg, Altona, and Wandsbeck. And they formed a community conglomerate that became pretty much the most significant community in Central Europe. And, I, and, and, and I'm mentioning them because I need just to open up one other issue to get our consciousness back. Because there's something was happening that's not really a part of the way that the Jewish world works today, but the Jewish world itself, just organically, was very divided. I'm going to talk in this course about a lot of machlokus. 
disputes. Disputes that rip apart countries, disputes that rip apart communities, disputes that rip apart families. If you throw a stone in the 18th century, it will land on a genius or a dispute. But there are some fractions, fractures in the Jewish world that were there organically. And the biggest one is that between the Ashkenazim and the Sfaradim. It's not like today. I mean, you know, we read occasionally about how there's a little bit of that going on in Israel today sometimes. But for the most part, we don't really notice that. But for example, um, the community of Altona, a suburb of Hamburg, was started by Jews, by Sephardic Jews, because the Ashkenazim in Hamburg were not letting them be buried in the Ashkenazic cemetery. Now, the two communities all over the world were aware of each other's existence and they kind of respected each other as existing but that's about it. In all communities Sephardim and Ashkenazim had different shuls, they had different cemeteries, they had different life events, they had different rabbis, these were working in parallel. So it's a very significant thing. So when we look at the people we're going to look at, they're going to traverse that it's extremely interesting to realize that distinction and how it's happening. Another, so, so, so just let me talk about communities because when we come back from the break, I'm going to go into actual personalities and we're going to start looking at some stories. But if I, if I ground this now, then it'll make so much more sense. Uh, we have in the Ottoman Empire, as I said, we have this axis between uh, Salonika, Constantinople, Smyrna. That's a very, very important Jewish axis, commercially, religiously, and so on. That's been like that for a long time. But the fact that the Ottoman Empire had opened its doors at the end of the 15th century to Jews fleeing from the Iberian Peninsula, fleeing from Spain and Portugal, has really, really boosted those numbers significantly. There's another axis, the one I spoke about, in the West, between Amsterdam and London. London's very interesting because if you're living in London, in the community of London, how many people have ancestors that trace back to Britain, to England? You see, that's really amazing because we're in Melbourne. If you ask that question just about anywhere else, to an English-speaking audience, I mean, South Africa's got a lot of Lithuanian going on, but if you ask it in most places, most people have, and a lot of my ancestors, for example, came from England, but in Melbourne, obviously, there's a huge uh, preponderance of, of 20th century migration from Europe. But if you were living in London at the beginning of the 18th century, you would know something very, very significant. And what would that be? you would know that Jews have only been allowed to live in England for the last 40 or 50 years. That was opened up by Dutch Jews, particularly through the efforts of Rabbi Menasseh ben Israel and his famous conversation with Cromwell in the middle of the 1600s, that allowed Jews to return to England after a quite significant absence since 1290. 
And so we start to see waves of Dutch Jews come into England. And then later in the century, we go, in the 1700s, we're going to see waves come from Central and Eastern Europe into England. And so much, in fact, are we going to see Jews shifting westward to take advantage of the new economic horizons that they see for themselves, that, of course, England in the middle of the 1700s, under a kind of very progressive Whig initiative, are going to introduce what's going to become known as the Jew Bill. I want you to imagine, if you can, a society that is discussing how it is that it can give refugees and immigrants a path to naturalization and citizenship. What would that society look like? That, yeah, well, that was the joke, but no one got it. So they introduced this thing called the Jew Bill. Uh, it was because the Jew Bill actually got repealed a year later that then left tens of thousands of Jews living on the street, which is why the East Ends of London and so on, and the slums became crowded with Jews all trying to survive in the streets of London towards the end of the 18th century. That's another story. We'll look at that later. Then we have the significant community. There's, well, as you know, Jews have been living in Eastern Europe in Poland since the 14th century. Casimir the Great opened the doors to Jews to start coming into Poland. And so by now, since the 1300s, we've been in Poland for three or four hundred years, and we're starting to build up quite a significant presence in Poland. There's a few hundred thousand Jews living right across this. It's not quite known as the Pale of Settlement yet, but it is getting there. And in fact, already we're expanding out and we're, we're seeing already the, the, the shtetl is now kind of an established form of existence. This, we're going to look at it particularly in quite in depth next week. This village off the land type existence. But there are some significant cities. So what is the most significant single community in Eastern Europe is? Vilna's big. Vilna is big and it's going to become even bigger in the century we're going to look at. But at the moment when we open up, it's probably Prague. And Prague has got a very, very respected and established Jewish community. And not just that the community is established and respected, but it means that the leaders of those communities, the rabbis of those communities, are going to be very, very significant figures on the stage of Jewish history, as we are going to see in the second half. So, and there's one more person I'm going to talk about, then we'll take a quick break, and then I'll come over, and I promise you when we come back from the break, it will start getting interesting. Everything, <laughs> everything I've spoken about now is just background to what I'm going to talk about after the break. And we have one more community I just want to mention uh, because it doesn't really fit anywhere. It doesn't fit really in the Ashkenazic world in, Euro in Northwestern Europe or Central Europe. And it doesn't quite fit, absolutely, it doesn't quite fit in the Ottoman Empire. And that, of course, is the fascinating communities of Italy, which have their own thing going on and significant communities. What are the probably the two most significant communities in Italy. I'll be impressed if people know this. It means you probably don't need to do this course if you know this information, but it will help. Well, Venice is one, definitely. Venice is a very significant community. Not Rome. No, Bologna's got a community. Ferrara has a community. 
But no, this community is super important. Naples? Not Naples. Milan. No, it's... <laughs> I love it. It's like, it's making me want to go there. You make all that. Livorno. Did someone say that? Oh, I'm so sorry. Who said that? You said that. Very good. It is, in fact, Livorno. So Venice and Livorno form another axis. Livorno is an immensely important community in the 17th and 18th century. It has... Italy at this time, by the way, is undergoing its own kind of mini late Renaissance, early Enlightenment. You can see that in art and literature and philosophy and so on. And the Jews are capitalizing on that. The first figure I'm going to talk about after the break is someone who is a pure product of that Italian-Jewish-Livorno environment, a very great scholar and a rabbi, but someone who exemplifies the whole tenure of Italian Jewry. It would never have occurred to him, for example, that rabbis should not be fully conversant in science and mathematics and literature and so on. That's a very different type of Jewish leadership that is being enculturated up here. Italy is its own thing. And of course, as has always been the case right throughout the Middle Ages, the closer Jewish communities are to being underneath the skirt of the Pope, ironically, the safer they are. But Italian Jewry has now entered a very, very impressive phase. So these are what I want to talk about some background events, but we're going to have a very quick break. We're going to start looking at actual persons, but with the background we have now, it's all going to be a lot easier and it's going to make sense. All right. So one of the things that I wanted to uh, just quickly cover before I launch into what I was going to talk about is, um, uh, well, one gentleman actually uh, made me realize that, uh, as we've pointed out in previous talks, the Sabbatean movement was not a simple movement. It, 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 it had a deep impact on Jewish civilization. And in fact, there are many people that, because the idea of the Messiah is someone who's going to unite the Jewish people and bring them to the land of Israel, that Shabbat Tzvi is regarded as one of the precursors of the thinking that's going to lead to Zionism. It doesn't mean necessarily that Zionism is per se a messianic movement, although there are those who claim it is, but it starts shifting the thinking in the world. And even Shabbat Tzvi wasn't existing in a vacuum because he was relying on antecedents to that in the previous hundred years and so on. The other thing I just want to touch on briefly, even though really it's the first person, the first individual person I want to talk about in the context of what I have spoken about prior to the break. And everything I spoke about prior to the break is a, simply a prelude, a backgrounding so that I can talk about certain people and events. And uh, one person, the first person I'm going to talk about is, of course, um, one of the most significant people from a perspective of Jewish history uh, that we have in the 18th century, uh, because this person is able to answer a fundamental historical question. The fundamental historical question that we always ask ourselves when we look at history is, there are several fundamental historical questions, but one of the fundamental historical questions we always ask ourselves when we look at any historical period is, how do we know what we know? And 
we obviously there are many answers to that question and historical sources and our knowledge comes from a variety of areas but one of the main reasons why we can know what we know about any historical period and what really opens up for us is through personal journals and diaries of people who lived in those times and described their life and the most significant diary of the early 18th century from a Jewish perspective, what it was like to live inside Jewish communities in Central Europe was, of course, written by a woman. Glugel of Hamelin is describing what life is like, kind of for the most part, in this um, axis here, in these communities I spoke about, of Hamburg, Altona, Wandsbeck, what it was like to live in northern Germany in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. And the most startling thing that shifts our consciousness is that Gluckel was deeply involved in commercial activity and in responsibility uh, for maintaining not just a home but also businesses and properties and so on. This is a time it's not this picture that we have, this anachronistic picture that we have, that we project back, that everybody in this time was living some ultra-Orthodox shtetl existence where women ran around in burkas and were never seen. It was completely expected that women were utterly equal with men in civic life, and in business and so on. Gluckel had two husbands. They both died. And on each time, she took on the mantle of running their business ventures and so on. She raised, I mean, she had 14 children from her first marriage and a thousand million children from her second marriage. And, you know, and she led a very interesting life. So that's one interesting aspect to come out of Gluckel. And I can't go into it too much now, but I urge you, if you're interested in that, to get hold of the diaries of Gluckel. Of course, they've been translated into German and into English. I'll write it on the board. Yes, I can see that. If I don't write things on the board, say, David, write it on the board. So she said, David, write the board. Now, there are various ways of spelling this, but uh, most Gluckel, Gluckel of Hamlin. And... Uh, Go into it, read the diaries, and you will see not only about how women participated in, in, in business and civic life, but also just in a way how precarious life was, even in established communities, that it wasn't like at any moment's notice that at the whim of uh, the sovereign, uh, Jews could be expelled, uh, if there was a riot, Jews could be massacred. So these things were still very, very much a part of everyday life. It wasn't like living in a modern industrialised Western country today. This is very, we're still very much in a precarious existence. Obviously, the larger, the stronger, the more connected, the more established your community is, the safer you will feel. But no community kind of east of here was really, really starting to feel safe. So it's a very interesting facet to emerge from Gluckel's diaries. Gluckel is one of the most significant diarists of Jewish history, full stop. And the detail that she gives us about what it's like to live in central Germany at the end of the 17th, beginning of the 18th century is fascinating. So I want to mention that. But I'm going to move now to someone I alluded to before the break. And now that we understand a lot of the background issues that I've talked about, uh, because what did we talk about? We talked about Enlightenment, we talked about Mercantilism, we talked about Sabbateanism. Huh? 
We talked about uh, communities. We talked about the Sephardic Ashkenazic divide. We talked about a few things. But um, I'm going to go to 1705, which is pretty much towards the beginning of the century. And we're going to look at the community of London. And in the community of London, of course, had a Sephardic community and it had an Ashkenazi. The Ashkenazi community was quite small, but it was growing as waves of Ashkenazic Jewry were just starting to come in. But the established community was the Sephardic community. And the core of that Sephardic community were actually Sephardic Jews that had been living for the last couple of hundred years in Holland. So it wasn't like they were coming, you know, um, straight fresh from Spain or other places. Uh, they were uh, primarily a core of Dutch uh, immigrants that had come in the last few decades. But by the beginning of the 1700s, they were sufficiently grounded that they were able to build a brand new spanking shul that is synagogue that is still there and is basically the oldest synagogue in London. And it is, of course... Bevis Marks. And now in 1705, the Bevis Marks... Am I saying something wrong? Or you? No, no, we're good? Yeah. It still hasn't got any electricity. It still hasn't got electricity, amazing. No, well in 1705, uh, the, Be the Bevis Marks synagogue is brand spanking new. I mean, the, the polish on the wood's probably still moist and so on. And they've got themselves this amazingly cool rabbi. And this, when I say cool, he was cool. Uh, he had come to take up the position as the Sephardic chief rabbi of London, and he had come from Livorno in Italy, and his name was... If anyone knows this, I'll be blown, I'll be like very impressed. I won't be blown away because I expect you to know some of this stuff, but it's very interesting. This is a figure that really exemplifies some of the things I want to talk about this evening. His name is David Nieto. And David Nieto is a very accomplished individual. Not only is he an extremely scholarly rabbi, but he's right across literature and philosophy and science. And he is really a, an exemplar of the age of the Enlightenment. And he's really trying to get his head around the great advances that are being made in science and mathematics and philosophy. And Nieto gets up one day and gives a sermon in the Bevismark Synagogue that causes tremendous controversy. Nieto gets up and he says, uh, there's this new term that's being used called nature. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you that nature is God. And I'm sure a lot of the people who went to shore went, yeah, well, okay, fine, you know, let's go and go to the Kiddish. I wonder if they've got some. <laughs> and other people were completely scandalized this. And this was, this was a sermon that really kind of marks one of the first great disputations or debates or machlokasen of the 18th century because he was accused of being what? as a Spinozist. And to accuse someone being a Spinozist was tantamount to accusing them of being an atheist. 
And this set the whole Jewish community of London alight. It's a very, very interesting early 18th century problem. He thought he was being really cool, but in fact, many in London thought that the new Sephardic chief rabbi was a heretic. And this went on for, this debate raged on for the next eight or nine years. And then finally, to resolve it, into London, coming from his own fresh set of problems, was an enormous figure... we know now as the Chacham Tzvi. Right, Tzvi Hirsch Ben Yaakov. He was originally from uh, Central Europe and he had, as a young scholar and a brilliant young scholar, uh, got, gone through a series of small to middling uh, rabbinic appointments until eventually he found himself as... Uh, the rabbi of uh, Hamburg, Altona, Wandsbeck, which was a massive position to hold, the rabbi of the three communities. But although, by all accounts, he appears, the Chacham Tzvi, Tzvi Hirsch Ashkenazi was his name. So although he uh, was, by all accounts, a, a likable person and a, and, and a very nice person, one of those people that, for some reason, always seems to be at the centre of controversy. And... Uh, he had to leave Hamburg-Altona and so on, but eventually he was saved by the fact that he was then appointed, he was then invited to take on what was pretty much the most envied rabbinic position in Europe. Look, just before I talk about that, uh, you have to realise what it means to have a rabbinic position. Look, it's like, and I I often use this analogy and it's true, all right, is that if you are born in the slums today in Brazil, how do you get out of that? Soccer. Sport, but there's only one sport in Brazil, right? Soccer. Similarly, if you are a bright Jewish boy from a moderate socioeconomic background, how can you rise out of that to become great. Where is your ambition going to go? You need to go into rabbinics because there really isn't any other field that's available to you. We're not at emancipation yet. We haven't barely had the enlightenment. And so what you would do is you would try and study for years and years and become a brilliant scholar and then you might get a small to middle rabbinic appointment and if you were very impressive at that you would move up the scale and there were three or four jobs in Europe that everybody wanted. (laughs) And probably among those, the one that everybody wanted was the one that was offered to Chacham Tzvi Ashkenazi, and that, of course, was the chief rabbi of Amsterdam. Not only because Amsterdam was then, as it is now, the coolest place to live in Europe, but also because where is the average... uh, Well, basically, the salary that the Amsterdam community was offering their chief rabbi was no less than... 10 times the average salary that a rabbi would get at any of the other great communities. They were actually offering two and a half thousand tala, whereas it was kind of like maybe two to three hundred uh, tala for any other uh, 
the community. So this is a very big point. But apart from the money, and Svihosh Ashkenazi said, I'm not really interested in the money. It's the prestige, it's the influence and so on. So he was invited. So he goes to Amsterdam. But of course, in Amsterdam, uh, he tries his best to stay out of trouble. But what had happened in Amsterdam, uh, just a short while after he got there, or a couple of years after he got there, was that into Amsterdam, don't worry, I haven't forgotten, we're still on David Nieto in London, and uh, the Chacham Tzvi is about to arrive. By the way, why, why, if his name is Ashkenazi, which means that uh, he's Ashkenazi, why is he called Chacham? Chacham is a Sephardic title. The Sephardic called their greatest scholars Chacham. Why does he have the name Chacham? He wants to blend in. He wants to blend in. It's because as a young man, he went to study in Constantinople and he is the only rabbi from Europe that the scholars in Constantinople considered sufficiently learned that they would give him the title of Chacham. We think in our days that, you know, the Ashkenazic world looks down on the Sephardic world, right? At that time in the world, it's the complete opposite. The Ashkenazim had to work very, very hard to impress the Sephardic world. And Chacham Tzvi Hirsch Ashkenazi was the only... And he was so proud of having been awarded with the title of Chacham by the community of Constantinople that even when he returned to Europe and took on rabbinic positions, he retained the title of Chacham. So he's Chacham Tzvi Hirsch Ashkenazi. He's the chief rabbi in Amsterdam. And who walks into Amsterdam in around 1710? Just as luck would have it for Tzvi Ashkenazi, who's sitting in Amsterdam, being the rabbi of Amsterdam. By the way, just before we talk about who walks into Amsterdam, don't, don't worry, we won't lose the thread, you won't be disappointed, but I want to, I want to fill this in. One of the great things about um, these rabbis is they left huge works of halachic responsa. And the halachic responsa means they're answering in unbelievable ways, incredible questions that are put to them. You know, these are the questions that your local rabbi simply can't answer, and it goes all the way up to the great rabbis of Europe. So we have tremendous bodies of what we call shut, which is just an abbreviation for sheilot utshuvot, questions and answers, responsa, on some big questions of the day. And Chacham Tzvi's responsa are amongst the most read and studied and amazing responses that we have from this period. And I'll just want to give you two because it's extremely interesting because they're still with us. Well, one of them is because there's one question that he was asked. It's called, it's a famous response called the chicken with no heart. And what it was, it was a woman who in those days you'd get a chicken. You wouldn't go to Solomon's or Coles and get your chicken nicely plastic wrapped. You'd take your chicken and you'd go to the shochet right? And the shechet would check it for you, but then you'd have to take it home and pluck it and kosher it and all the rest of it. And, you know, when you kosher a chicken, those of you who've done it, um, you know, after you pluck it and you open it up, then you've got to look at it and just, you've got to give a quick look and make sure it's got all its bits and pieces, right? Well, this chicken had no heart. And it became famously known as the chicken with no heart. How, do, is this chicken kosher? It had no heart, couldn't find a heart, whatever. Yeah, well... <laughs> the, but but, but that, that, that's kind of a curiosity. But the, the really inter- one really interesting question, and I, I mention this because it's still kind of with us today, and people go, oh, that's an 18th century question, but it's come back. And that is, he was asked, <coughs> everybody know what a golem is? Yes. Yes. So a golem is, you know, put your hand up if you're not sure what a golem is. That's a good, 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 good. 
You're brilliant because you allow me to give a two-second explanation of what a golem is. For the people that are pretending they know, but they don't. A golem is, but they do know, because it's a very famous uh, thing, mythological thing in Jewish history. It's, a, it's like this kind of statue made out of clay in human form, and you put the name of God on it, and it becomes alive and it runs around and does your laundry and beats up anti-Semites and does whatever you need a golem to do. There are some very famous golems in Jewish history. And then when you need it no longer, you take the name of God away from it and it returns to dust. Right? So it's kind of... So he's asked, can a golem be counted in a minion? (laughs) So he has a whole long answer to this in which he ends up by saying no <laughs> and people go, oh, golem and Armenia, right? But that is the responsum that has been called upon in contemporary culture about whether or not you can join in a minion on the internet. So all of these things amazingly are coming back uh, and it's just a very, very interesting curiosity. Anyway, He's sitting in Amsterdam, and who walks into Amsterdam? No, not the Golem. Nehemia Chia Chayun. Now, Nehemia Chayun. Has anybody heard of Nehemia Chayun? He was a very, very naughty boy. Well, he was also a great sage and a mystic. But he was basically the biggest Sabbatean Kabbalist in Europe. And he had written a book of pure Sabbatean theology. He actually argued even more than that. He actually argued that God was in effect a trinity. Uh, He argued that... uh, once again, the soul of the Messiah has to descend into the realms of uncleanliness in order to redeem the final sparks, which is why the whole concept of Sabbatean antinomian practice comes about, and so it's a big thing. But of course, your average Jewish person didn't recognize that. They just saw a very holy man, a very learned man, a very charismatic man with a book. Basically, through ignorance, he managed to get this book published. It is the only Sabbatean text that was mainstream published. And it was mainstream published in Berlin some years before, primarily because the Jews of Berlin just saw a holy man who wanted to get his book published, and they didn't question it. But he comes into Amsterdam... And uh, pretty soon after... uh, the Chacham Tzvi's opinion is asked, and the Chacham Tzvi wasn't necessarily so versed in Sabbatean theology, and he even he saw a holy man with a book, and so he kind of said, yeah, well, I don't think there's any issue there. Uh, and that was, uh, that was good, because it meant that that was able to make peace with the Sephardic community, because when Chayun came in, he kind of aligned himself with the Sephardic community, who also didn't recognize his Sabbatean credentials until the book was read by another important figure. Remember, we've only got four classes on the 18th century. So if I talk about people, they are significant. And that is Moshe or Moses Chagiz. And Moses Chagiz had basically spent his life 
fighting Sabbateans. And when he saw Hayun's book in Amsterdam, his head exploded. And he basically shut down everything against Hayun. He put him in excommunication and he convinced Tzvi Ashkenazi to do the same. And so the Chacham Tzvi Ashkenazi came firmly down on the side of this is completely unkosher and the community must not have anything to do with this man. The book is banned and we have to shun him. This is Sabbatean. This is exactly the sort of thing we are on watch against. It's heretical. It's going to take blah, 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 etc., etc. That then caused a major reaction with the Sephardic community in Amsterdam, who closed ranks, primarily politically, closed ranks behind Nehemiah Chayun. So already, and this controversy eventually cost the Chacham Tzvi his position. He was left in no... Uh, the only circumstance he could, he could have was to resign from his position. Uh, even the Ashkenazic community in Amsterdam came under far too much pressure uh, from the Sephardic community over Chayun. Eventually, eventually, even the leaders of the Sephardic community chucked Chayun out. Eventually, but by that time the damage had all been done. When he leaves Amsterdam, he goes, oh, where are we going to go now? He goes to London to solve this issue and he is invited to London to resolve the issue over David Nieto. Is David Nieto a Spinozist? And the reason I talk about these issues is to give us an idea of the things that were bothering people in the 18th century. Just as I'm sure in two or three hundred years time people will open up the Australian Jewish news and go, can you believe that's what was troubling them? Although we, even now we do that. Even now we do that, yeah. Um, but these are the issues that were splitting communities. And what's fascinating is that when Tzvi Ashkenazi went to London, he sat with Nieto and Nieto gave him a lesson in Spinoza. They sat with Spinoza's works this is the greatest halakhic rabbi in Europe. They sat with Spinoza's works and Nieto was able to explain to him the difference, it's a very technical difference in philosophy, between natura naturata and natura naturans, meaning that God is not confined to what we call nature. It's not just, remember that Spinoza was such a pantheist that there's no free will, there's no divine beyond what we can access through substance and thought. Whereas Nieto is explaining to the Chacham Tzvi that what he was really referring to as God was the spirit and power inside nature. Nature is simply the way God works in the world, but it didn't, it was, it didn't define, it didn't limit God. It didn't say that that's all that God was, unlike Spinoza who pretty much was saying that. So this is a, a fascinating uh, little um, cameo that gives us an idea of the kind of intellectual debates that people were having. But the figures involved in this, uh, in that debate, that debate was pretty much a storm in a teacup in London. What I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes, which you're also going to sit there and go, Really? I'm about to talk to you about a dispute that became pretty much the second biggest dispute of the whole of the 18th century. 
And in an age where disputes really defined what communities were thriving on and, and what was going on. But the, I'm not looking at the disputes just for the sake of looking at disputes. I'm looking at it because they illustrate the way that history was shifting. Now there was a brilliant, brilliant, we're going to learn about a lot of brilliant rabbis and a lot of brilliant people. And this person is certainly amongst the most brilliant because he's born probably around 1690, which makes him very much an 18th century figure. And as a young man, and when I say young man, he was so brilliant, he was so brilliant, that at the age of 20, he was appointed the Dayan, which means effectively the chief rabbinic judge of Prague. That just shows you just how big that would that would be like someone becoming um, a Supreme Court justice at the age of 20. That's how brilliant he was. And his name, and he goes down in history as one of the most fascinating figures of the 18th century and someone who you will have to know about when you're sitting at that dinner party. And his name was Rabbi Yonatan. There's different ways of spelling this, but it's basically Obschitz. Obschitz, Obschitz. It's something along those lines. Obschitz, Obschitz. It's usually spelled EU or it's pronounced Obschitz. If you say Jonathan Obschitz, everyone in Jewish history knows who you're talking about. And now you know who we're talking about as well. So he becomes the chief rabbi of Prague. He is brilliant and he's loved and he be soon becomes the greatest rabbi in Eastern Europe and he's answering response he's also a Kabbalist which means he's also a mystic so he's got a tremendous creative mind he's got a very charismatic personality and he's having a very big effect on communities and so on and very respected and he's chuffing along in his career and people are just waiting to see how far this is going to go because he's already still young, but he's so brilliant and he's so dynamic. And his fame is spreading. And uh, he wrote some amulets. Now, amulets. Now, writing amulets is not a thing that your average rabbi does today. But uh, in those days, um, writing Kabbalistic amulets was certainly certain mystics who were writing amulets was seen as a fairly standard practice, specifically if there was crisis in the community. So various historians have looked into what the background behind the famous Ibshitz amulets are, and it's generally understood that there was uh, a few year, uh, there was a, a concentrated period of time where uh, a lot of children were going missing in particular communities. And uh, so uh, he was writing some amulets to help people find their children or to locate what had happened and so on. It's not an unusual thing. People go to Kabbalists and mystics today to get amulets for all sorts of things. Those who are not into magical Kabbalistic practice or superstition don't do that, but it is very done today. So he wrote some amulets. Chacham Tzvi Ashkenazi's son. One of the most famous figures of 18th century Jewish history. That's there. His son. Someone who I'm sure a number of people in this room will have heard of. Was Jacob Emden. Now, Emden was...
is a fascinating figure. Because Emden, apart from being the son of Tzvihosh Ashkenazi, so he himself was very learned, and Emden uh, was deep into wider culture as well, had his own printing press. And believe me, if you're as argumentative and as polemic as he is, having your own printing press is incredibly handy, <laughs> fantastic thing to have. And he, of course, lived in a part of Europe in, uh, in, in Germany that was actually belonged to the Kingdom of Denmark. That was his kind of direct governmental rule. But he uh, saw himself, like his father, very much on watch against different heresies, although he... Uh, a super interesting guy. I mean, he really, really studied hard the sciences of the day. It's like, it's people don't realize that that was what rabbis did then. Do you know what I mean? It would be if they translated that to today, it would be inconceivable that someone would be a rabbi without a degree in science or in literature or in something. But uh, the Torah says that you need to study the Torah day and night. So Emden would only study science at dusk. <laughs> Every hour at dusk, which was neither day nor night, he would study science. But if you do it every day, you become quite knowledgeable. The short of it is that Emden saw these amulets and went, Ibschitz is a Sabbatean. These amulets are full of cryptic Sabbatean references. Then he went to Ibschitz's Kabbalistic writings, his other books, and he says, I've gone through his books and I can see cryptic references to Sabbateanism here and I can see cryptic references to Sabbateanism there. You're a Sabbatean. Now, that conflict, that that machlokas, that dispute, that debate, ripped Europe in half. As I said, it wasn't a small thing. It was the, it, clearly the second biggest dispute of the whole of the 18th century. And the basic, the basic rift was between West and East. If you were West, you tended to believe that Emden was probably right, but if you were East, you thought that that accusation was nonsense, and that Ibschitz was your man, and that he was a very mainstream, holy, respectable rabbi. But it was not a small thing. It was an issue in which the other greatest rabbis of Europe were called upon to adjudicate. Yechezkel Landau, who by the 1720s, 1730s, had now become the leading halachic authority in Europe, the Nodabi Yehuda, was called in. He said, oh, I don't want to get involved. The young, the very young, the very young, just to show you how great he was, he himself was only in his 20s, the very young Elijah the Gaon of Vilna was asked to adjudicate it. The Gaon of Vilna said, I don't really want to get involved. It's too hot. It's too political. And, and it was left by the 1750s to the Council of the Four Lands to eventually decide the dispute in favor of Ibschitz. 
and to say he's not a Sabbatean and everyone can just calm down. Emden was ordered by the King of Denmark to stop printing about this issue because it was stirring up trouble and stirring up Jewish communities right across Europe. It was a huge thing. And the great irony, one of the great ironies of it, is that today, Emden and Ibschitz are buried next to each other <laughs> in the cemetery at Altona. And they're still fighting. And I don't know if they're still arguing, but here's... Here's another fascinating thing. Here's another fascinating thing and shows you how the 18th century is really the source of today's world. If you go today to the centre of the book centre of the Jewish world, where is the book centre of the Jewish world? Me'asharim. <laughs> and you go into one of the many bookshops in Me'asharim, don't forget, you know, like, like <laughs> bookshops in Mao Sharim are like cafes in Paris or pubs in, in, in Outback. So, you know, every second thing is a bookshop. And you go to the bookshops, you can buy Jonathan Ibschitz's books. All right? You can buy them. They're fully kosher because of the decision of the Council of the Four Lands in the middle of the 18th century. Take a taxi from Mao Sharim up to the university to give at rum to the secular halls of academia in Jewish history and it is a given that Ibschitz is a Sabbatean. A given. And they'll show you all the proof, not the least of which is that several years later his son came out as a Sabbatean. Uh, so it's a fascinating, so that rift is kind of still with us, that whole Emden-Ibschitz dispute. If you look up the Emden-Ibschitz dispute, you will see it is a major theme of the 18th century. Interestingly enough, also on the subject of Chayun. Chayun was chased from community to community. He almost died several times. His son converted to Christianity and eventually uh, tried to... Uh, um, sue all sorts of uh, rabbinic figures in Europe for what they'd done to his father and so on. But Chayun's reputation was never recovered, although obviously it goes without saying that if you're rummaging through your grandparents' book collection and you happen to come across a copy of Chayun's book, um, then you should probably let someone know because it's extremely rare and uh, worth a lot of money. But... Uh, it wasn't then, but in those, in, but Chayun is a fascinating figure. He's not the only Sabbatean, he's probably the biggest Sabbatean. We're going to, Sabbateanism is never going to entirely go away from this course. It'll always be in the background. And don't forget that Sabbateanism still exists. There are Sabbateans today. Yeah. I don't know a lot about Sabbatean. Can you just give a little bit of philosophy about Sure. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see what time it is. Okay, I'll do... Uh, well, um, uh, which aspect do you want to know? There, there is a... There's disputes about why are the... Well, well, okay, 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 okay. Um, essentially, believing Shabtai Tzvi is the Messiah was kind of okay until he converted to Islam. 
that's not something that is really recognised within the Jewish framework as something the Messiah is going to do. So that's the first thing. That is an amazing question and a question that some people ask. What was Shabtai supposed to do? The Rambam, Maimonides himself, tells you, if they threaten you with death or conversion to Christianity, you die. If they threaten you with death or conversion to Islam, you convert. And so, given that, why, what is the problem with Shabtai converting to Islam? The problem is, is that by the time he converted to Islam, he had millions of Jews around the world believing he was the Messiah. And the moral devastation that that caused across the world, the Jewish world in many ways never recovered. Don't underestimate for a minute just how wise... You, who's heard of Samuel Pepys? Yes. The famous diarist in London in the middle of the 1600s? Samuel Pepys in London is writing about... Shabtai Tzvi and how the Jewish communities are getting excited because their Messiah is sitting in, uh, in Turkey. By the way, when he was arrested by the Ottoman authorities, do you know where they kept him for two years? Anywhere I go in the world I say this and people just look at me, but when I say it to Australian audiences, I love it. Do you know where they kept him? Gallipoli. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so there's the one thing, there, there's that thing, but also... Also, there's an entire theology that went on with Sabbateanism about the soul of the Messiah going into the dark side and the whole concept of bringing redemption through sin. It's a very, very not kosher idea. L let me give you just one minute on that. Uh, you One minute on that. Uh, in the 1660s, there was kind of a revival, 1650s as well, there were various revivals of Jewish communities and one of them was the community of Jerusalem. And by the time you get to the 1660s, you've got this guy, Shabtai Tzvi, he's wandering around Jerusalem, he's about 40 years old, and he is undergoing what we now understand, he was having um, huge, sorry? Midlife crisis. Midlife, but more than midlife crisis, he was having tremendous mood swings between elation and depression. He was having all sorts of different psychotic episodes. We now understand, because psychologists have poured all over the life of Shabbat Tzvi, they now understand that he was a manic depressive, bipolar schizophrenic. And, but at the time, no, that was actually the clinical diagnosis they've given him, but at the time, he was told that he should go and see a faith healer, a young faith healer called Nathan, who was living in Gaza. Now, we can say, ah, oh, a faith healer, but those people were in fact proto-psychologists. They were the people that really formed this whole idea that we've come to know as therapy. But you'd walk in and they'd say, give you the correction for your soul, what you needed to do, and you'd say it was wrong. So he goes, on advice, he goes to see Nathan. And when he walks in to see Nathan, Nathan stands up and says to him, I'll tell you why your soul is going through these tremendous swings and episodes because you are the Messiah and your soul, which is a very interesting thing to tell a person who's manic depressive bipolar schizophrenic and your soul represents the tremendous fluctuations of the fortunes of the people of Israel themselves in exile so and now the thing is that he wasn't just as I as I've said before he wasn't just some archi from the comic books 
He was, of course, a very charismatic and learned rabbi, Shabtai Tzvi. He wasn't like other messiahs that we'll look at a little later that were basically ignoramuses who were pretending to be special. Shabtai Tzvi was a very... Look, they, hundreds and hundreds of towns in Europe were sending delegations to him to check him out, and they were coming back raving about him. And people were very, very taken in. So I can't spend more time on that, but the influence was huge. I want to talk, before we finish, I want to talk about one more development of this, then, then we'll finish up because um, we, 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 we have got, uh, uh, because we'll finish up. Um, because otherwise I'll just keep talking all night and we'll, we'll save it. But, but what, I, what I wanted to talk about was uh, another community. You can see why now I needed to background all the things I backgrounded before the break. Uh, I'm going to shift now to uh, here. And I'm going to look at a community sitting here about 50 miles north of Venice. And that is the Italian community of Padua. Who has been to Padua? Very good. And to the show. Yes. But, but, but the sad thing when you walk around Padua today is really the old town of Padua is that all you see, really, you see a bronze plaque which talks about how the inhabitants, the Jewish community of Padua was taken out and exterminated by the Nazis and sent off to concentration camps. They destroyed the community of Padua, which was hundreds and hundreds of years old, a very, very venerated and extremely respected uh, and productive community. And I've read the, all of the, uh, not all of, I've read some of the volumes of the communal records of Padua going back to the 16th century. It's fascinating, the things they deal with. Um, and the other thing you'll see when you walk around the old town today is the, is the little niches in the doorways where they had a mezuzah. But apart from that, there's no real Jewish community left in Padua. But Padua itself, as a town, like about 50 miles north of Venice, was famous, not from a Jewish perspective. It had the University of Padua, whose most famous graduate was... Well, are we going to get to that? From our perspective, yes. But whose most famous graduate was Galileo. And the University of Padua was fascinating in Jewish history. Why is it fascinating in Jewish history? Because it was the only university in Europe that would allow Jews, Jewish boys, the thought of a woman going to university was like hundreds of years away, well, about 150 years away, that would allow Jewish boys to go there in strict quota, to study medicine in recognition of the fact that, uh, on the one hand, Jews make good doctors, and then the other is that Jewish communities themselves need health professionals. So every year, a small group of Jewish boys would be allowed to sit in the University of Padua to study medicine. You might, for example, have a uh, upper middle class family somewhere in Central or Western Europe who would send one boy in their family to Padua to learn medicine. You might have a whole community band together to send a bright boy to Padua to study medicine. So there were these boys coming through. And Padua itself as a community was under the general rubric of the very powerful and influential community of Venice. And in around the mid-1720s, 
some of these families that had boys studying medicine in Padua would start <laughs> were starting to get letters from their sons and their students in Padua writing back to mum and dad saying oh um, I'm not really studying medicine anymore because I've met a very very interesting person and I'm studying with him and we've got our own program going on and that person of course is one of the most astonishing I'm going to finish on this person but we need to look at him to understand what the 18th century is his name and some of you will definitely have heard of this name because I've already heard it already Moses Chaim Luzzato not only completely fluent and familiar with the entire spectrum of rabbinic learning from Tanakh, the Bible, right through Midrash, right through to the Talmud, right through to Halakhic literature, knew five languages fluently, totally versed in Italian poetry from Dante to his own age, deeply and intimately familiar with the intricacies of Lurianic Kabbalah and completely well-versed in all of modern philosophy and mathematics, Chaim Moshe, Lutzato, Moshe Chaim Lutzato was not your average 18-year-old. So these people start meeting Moshe Chaim Lutzato. He wasn't enrolled at the University of Padua. He was just hanging out there. His family was, the Lozato family, was one of the famous Jewish families of Padua. And they, in 1707, was born this brilliant, rising comet that just blew everyone away who met him. Except that once these boys started writing back to mummy and daddy saying that they'd dropped out of medicine and were hanging out with him, a problem, by the way, which we can easily relate to in our own age, uh, they started getting concerned, so they start to write to the rabbis of Venice, and the rabbis of Venice start saying, well, what are you, what are you doing, what are you doing? And eventually, they expelled Lutzato and confiscated all his writings. So, Lutzato, who, by the way, when you talk in Jewish history about certain people, they are so huge that you don't actually even say their name. They're known by their acronym. You know, like Maimonides, Rabbi Moshe bin Maimon, is known as the Rambam. Similarly, Moshe Chaim Lutzato is known as the Ramchal. So the Ramchal is expelled from northern Italy, and he goes with his family. I mean, look, 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 look. Let's be honest. One of the things about the 18th century is that people seem to have two sides to them. There is this kind of mainstream public Nomian side. And then everybody's got their kind of like their secret private <laughs> naughty projects. And there's very little doubt that from what everything we know about the Ramchal and the writings and so on that we've seen, that he did actually have a form of messianic project. It wasn't Sabbatean. He wrote a book against the Sabbateans. But he had a different messianic project and he wrote about this idea of the messianic Moses. That it is in fact 
a new reincarnation of Moses that is going to be the final deliverer and Messiah of the Jewish people. Now, that aligned with the fact that, ah, oh, my name's Moses. Ah, oh, I'm really, really brilliant. And uh, he married a woman called Sipora. And, but he was expelled with his family uh, by the rabbis of Venice. And so they went to, first of all, went to Germany, went to Frankfurt. And Frankfurt was a little bit uneasy about having him there. By the way, you have to realize that he was so hot to handle because there was no one around that could match him, this young man. Um, later in the century, the Gaon of Vilna is going to say that he would have walked on foot to sit at the feet of Luzzato to learn from him. That's how big it was. Then he goes to Germany and eventually he ends up in Amsterdam where he makes a living grinding lenses. Just like Spinoza did, uh, you know, like 80 years before. He's not allowed to teach mystical teachings. He's been banned from teaching Kabbalah until he's 40. So he sits down and he starts writing philosophical and ethical treatises. He writes the most famous ethical work of the 18th century, the most famous Barnan, the book that the Gaon of Vilna said does not contain one superfluous word. And that is a book that you can read today because it is studied by tens of thousands of people around the world today. And that is the book Mesilat Yesharim. You see, people have heard of it. The Path of the Just the path of the just. I can spell that. The path <laughs> of the just. Famously translated in the 20th century by Mordechai Kaplan, the father of Reconstructionist Judaism. But there are many, many fine translations, or you can read it in Hebrew. He's also regarded as the granddaddy of modern Hebrew because he's the first person to write in kind of like a clear modern Hebrew. He's immense. Yes, he wrote it in Hebrew, but not just a, a, not a medieval rabbinic Hebrew, but like a new neo-modern Hebrew. It's amazing. He also wrote pastoral plays, and he was still writing Kabbalistic texts, and he was writing books on logic, and he was writing books on all sorts of things. At the age of 40, he, being now allowed now out of the... He was never personally excommunicated. They couldn't do that to him. They excommunicated his writings, but not him. And at the age of 40... He went, in a, in a, as part of a movement that we will look at later in the course about people going to live in the land of Israel in the middle of the 18th century, he took his family and they went to live in the land of Israel. They arrived in Akko, in Acre, uh, where they lasted a few months before the entire family died in a plague. What we lost through the early demise of the Ramchal we, is incalculable, but to show you how estimated he is in Jewish history, he is very, very influential on all the major movements we're going to look at in this course. He's influential on the Hasidim, he's influential on the, all the Mitnagda, the schools that came, the Lithuanian schools that came out of the Gra. he's influential on the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, who also claimed him. To show you the estimation, he's buried in Tiberias, Next to, I mean, there's a lot of famous people buried in Tiberias. Well, the Rambam's actually at the bottom of the hill. And when you go up the hill behind the bus station, at the top of the hill, there's very, very few people buried up there. He is buried next to Rabbi Akiva. Yeah. Next to. 
That's how big the Ramchal was in terms of his estimation. And of course, during those years where the rabbis of Venice were persecuting him, we have, of course, Moshe Hagiz running around going, he's a Sabbatean. I told you he's a Sabbatean. <laughs> and so on. Moshe Hagiz was probably not correct. In fact, in fact, one of the reasons why Moshe Hagiz thought that the Ramchal was a Sabbatean is because the Ramchal, because Lutzato actually read the Sabbatean texts in order to argue against them. And he's the one who explained to the Sabbateans themselves why they were wrong. He said, because... Look, it's, uh, let's see how much time we've got. We've got one minute to, ex- <laughs> one minute to explain probably the most complex doctrine in Lurianic Kabbalah in one minute, but I'll explain it. You see, this big explosion that had happened in Jewish mystical thinking, nothing short of a revolution in Jewish theological terms that is still with us today, it affected everything, is the Lurianic revolution that happened in Tzfat in northern Israel in the 16th century. So what happens is, is that the Ari, Isaac Luria, explains that the first act of God was a withdrawal. The universe is created out of nothing. But how do you get the nothing inside a God that is everything? So God withdraws from the space to create a spiritual vacuum. And into that vacuum, the light is then poured. But as the Vitalian expositors of Lurianic thought and all the others explain, the light, this ray of light that's going to go on and create the universe, only comes to halfway in this abstract picture in order to create concepts of up and down and so on. Nathan of Gaza, Shabtai Tzvi's kind of primary Kabbalistic literary figure, explains, oh yes, the light that comes into the vacuum goes to there, but the soul, but the Messiah has to, because that is the realm of purity. Here is the realm of the unclean forces. And the Messiah has to go into, that's why he had to convert to Islam, because the last sparks well, in order to explain what the last sparks mean, I'd have to talk about the shattering of the vessels, which is a whole other Lurianic concept. But the last sparks of holiness that had to be captured and redeemed were inside Yishmael. They were inside the spiritual forces of Islam. The ones inside Edom, meaning the ones inside Christianity, had already been redeemed. But Yishmael is on the way and the rise. Remember that we have a very, very famous Midrash. I don't mean to scare you, but we have had a very ancient prophecies in the Jewish world that Islam will rule the world prior to the advent of the Messiah. Now, a few hundred years ago, that seemed ridiculous. Now, the Messiah has to go. In. It's amazing that the Islamic world doesn't make more of the fact that our Messiah converted to Islam. So it was the Ramchal that read this and in his famous anti-Sabbatean work explained to them, you're not that wrong, except that it's not the body of the Messiah, it's the soul of the Messiah that has to descend into the realm of the klipot, the realm of the husk, the realm of uncleanliness in order to redeem the final sparks. Just the fact that he admitted reading Sabbatean texts was enough for Moshe Chagiz to completely flip his banana and go, 
you know, the Ramchal is a Sabbatean. And even today you'll hear, oh, is he a Sabbatean? But even in the world of scholarship and in the world of religious scholarship, as well as academic scholarship, he's not regarded as a Sabbatean. He's regarded as one of the most fascinating figures, bright sparks of the whole of the 18th century. So I hope in that crazy overview we've covered today, if it thematically holds, I wanted to background some of the issues that we're going to, that are, pertaining to the beginning of the 18th century. I wanted to look at some of the great big disputes that were happening, some of the figures that were emerging in this period, and hopefully give us a feel for that. Next week, we are going to dive into a massive area of the 18th century that I haven't even mentioned, that of course is going in parallel, that some of you would have been sitting there thinking, oh, I wonder when he's going to talk about that, and the answer is next week. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.